What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Now what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute and National Free Market Think Tank. And this is episode 120-something of the podcast, somewhere in the 120s. not exactly sure what number. Uh, but, you know, obviously not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you just tuning in for the first time, just listening for the first time, basically what we do here on this podcast is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, something we think uh, you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today, once again, a return guest, Dr. Jonathan White. And Dr. White is Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University. And he is also the author of 13 books, two of which he has previously guested for on the show. And those books are To Address You as My Friend, African Americans Letters, African Americans Letters to Abraham Lincoln, and A House Built by Slaves, African American Visitors to the Lincoln White House, uh, the latter of which won him the Gilder Lerman Pro- Lincoln Prize for 2022, which is awarded annually for the finest scholarly work in English on Abraham Lincoln, the American Civil War soldier, or the American Civil War era. And he is also the author of Shipwreck, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade, uh, which is published, uh, was actually getting published, we're taping this on the 31st of July, so it's actually published tomorrow, August 1st, by Rowan and Littlefield, so that's the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. White, thank you very, very, very much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back again. No problem. You are uh, you actually just missed out on being our first three time guest. H.W. Uh, uh, Brands, Bill Brands, uh, just beat you out by uh, two, two weeks well, ago. He's hard he to on. keep up with. He's got lots of big books <laughs> coming out every year. Yeah, I know. I know. So I was telling him I was thinking maybe when we get to like five, I'm going to do a thing like do you remember? Uh, uh, I remember there was a skit. Saturday Night Live did once with, uh, I think it was Tom Hanks and Steve Martin and like Paul Simon were like, Tom Hanks had like hosted the show oh. for like the fifth time and they had like the fifth timers club and they like, they, so they had like their own private, like, uh, like, uh, like little gentlemen's club. Uh, and they had like their own, uh, like blazers <laughs> that like, once you get in the five timers club, you get a blazer. So I was thinking maybe I'll do something like that once we actually get to, uh, once we get to, uh, Five so I'd wear it with pride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and uh, I told this to you before we started taping, but uh, once again, congratulations on the uh, on the Lincoln Prize. That's a uh, that's pretty cool uh, little uh, little feather in your cap there. That's a pretty neat yeah. Thing. Thank you so much. Oh no problem. All right. So the book uh, Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story, mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. Um, it's a story, uh, really a story of the, of a, one man, Appleton Oaksmith, and, uh, or really his family, um, his extended family, but really him and his mother, uh, 
uh, Elizabeth Oaks Smith. Um, but uh, how did this? How did Appleton Oaks Smith come to your attention, and uh, uh, what made you want to write this book? You know, what was the what was the genesis of it? Well, I started in 2015, and my original plan was to write a history of the domestic and the international slave trades during the Civil War. And so I started collecting a lot of materials about the slave trade in the Confederacy from state to state, but then also materials related to slave traders who were still importing Africans either to the United States or to Cuba in the 1850s and into the 1860s. And I had a research assistant that summer. His name's Daniel Glenn. And I gave Daniel a list of slave traders' names, people I knew about, people who had been arrested in 1860 or 61 or who had been in prison maybe for a little while and were writing to Lincoln seeking pardon. So I knew some of the names that I wanted to pursue. And I gave this list to Daniel and I said, go on newspapers.com and some of the other newspaper databases and just search for these names and see what you can find. And one day, Daniel came into my office and he said, have you ever heard of Appleton Oaksmith? And I thought, well, that's a really strange name. If I'd ever heard of Appleton Oaksmith, I don't <laughs> think I would have forgotten it. So I said, no. And he said, well, his name keeps coming up in each of the, in a lot of the stories that I'm finding. And so he kept digging that summer and he kept looking. And as I then began to work on the book and write, I was I decided, well, I'll have a chapter on Appleton Oaksmith. But then the more I wrote and the more I dug into his story, I realized that he deserved to have a book of his own. So I jettisoned the domestic slave trade part. And actually, I met someone who was working on that. So I actually said, give me your address. And I mailed him a box of everything I had found. And then I decided mm -hmm. to put off the the transatlantic slave trade other than this person, Appleton Oaksmith, and just write a biography of him. And then, as you said, I bring his mother in, too. She's really the the supporting role. If this was a, a movie, she'd be the supporting actress. And originally I had more of her in it, but several people read the book and said to diminish her role a little bit. So it, it tells Appleton's life story with her constantly kind of around the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a um, uh, interesting character in her own right. Um, she's uh, she's I guess you consider some sort of uh, celebrity or famous at least in America for um, for her involvement with uh, uh, arguing for women's rights, and she has a. Um, a literary reputation as well. Yeah, she was a very well-known uh, figure in the 19th century. She was an important first-wave feminist. She's working for women's rights. She's a public speaker and lecturer, poet, essayist, novelist, playwright. I mean, she's writing all sorts of different things and very well-known in the 1850s. She travels in the circles with Edgar Allan Poe, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Horace Greeley, Wendell Phillips. I mean, she knows everyone. It's interesting, in the 1850s, she's sympathetic towards the abolitionist cause, but her focus really is on, on women's rights. But the story of the book is the tragedy that happens to her family in the 1860s. Mm -hmm. And I think that that tragedy 
is what really derails her life so that, you know, today we know Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. We know a lot of the most important first wave feminists. I think that if the story of this book hadn't happened, we would also know who Elizabeth Oaksmith was. And I should add a, a, yeah. guy, a friend of mine, an English professor in Illinois named Timothy Sherman is publishing her works her her literary works and her private writings, and he's working on a biography of her. So part of my thought to diminish her role in my book is he knows her better than anyone else in the world, and so he's he's going to write that book. Yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned, in the 1860s, so much of her life is going to be overcome by events, and so much of her um, uh, uh, stamina is going to be uh, taken up with, uh, you know, trying petitioning for her son Appleton, and uh, you know, with all his uh, legal troubles, and then worrying about her children that are sort of spread all over the globe, and then also uh, essentially uh, mothering or raising uh, Appleton's children mm-hmm. while uh, he faces all the yeah. So it's not like she can devote much time to, uh, or as much time as she probably would like to, to her literary um efforts into her efforts on uh, uh women's rights and women's suffrage etc cetera, et cetera. yeah and during the war and i don't get into this in the book but during the war many suffragists they put that aside and they get into voluntary organizations that are bent on supporting the sure. union war effort after the war they come back and they say hey we supported the war effort we should have the right to vote and the the federal government basically says or I should say leaders in Congress basically say, you know, one problem at a time, this hour belongs to black men, they'll get the right to vote, and women are put off for a very long time. But she never really gets back involved in the woman suffrage movement after the war because her her life has just been so badly damaged by what happened to her family during the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, the family background, though, uh, um, <laughs> tragedy is, I mean, it's not just uh, something that happens uh, to her children. It's also the family uh, or her family background is a little uh, somewhat tragic too, a uh, little tragic history. with. Yeah, I called the book Shipwrecked. I, I haven't counted, but I think at least a dozen people. Well, actually, if you count like the numbers of men on certain ships that I allude to, I mean, hundreds of people drown in the book. But I, in detail, I describe probably about a dozen people who drown in the book. And so her father had drowned, and I mean, she just she just has all these people in her life who are connected to the sea, and the sea ultimately takes so many of them. So she loses her father to the waves, she loses a son to the waves, she loses at least four granddaughters beneath the waves. I mean, it is, it, maybe I'm not doing a good job of selling the book here to your audience, but it's a really tragic story. <laughs> of just how many, you know, this family that really clings to the sea is still, you know, they, they just suffer tremendously as a result of that. And it's interesting, I've, I've met and connected with some of the descendants of this family, and many mm-hmm. of them are still connected to the sea. So there's a whole group of them, there's, there's a whole wing of the family that lives in Alaska, and I think that they're connected to maritime endeavors there and then in, in the West Coast. So it's a family that's had really a lifelong connection to the sea, but it, at different points, it's 
Yeah, perfect. I mean, once it gets in your blood, you know, it's it's hard to yeah. get out. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, it's just one of those things. But uh, well, yeah, there's a part in the book. Uh, her mother uh, um, is they're uh, traveling over a bridge, I think, mm -hmm. right, right by the ocean, and her mother like holds her up and says something like, "Oh, you know, there, there's the sea. Maybe perhaps your father's." Uh, yeah, and Elizabeth Oaksmith like is yeah. like three years old at the time. They're traveling over <laughs> this river in, in New England, and yeah, her mother holds her up and says that. And Elizabeth Oaksmith ended up, right, She again, she was a very famous poet in her day, and she wrote a number of poems about ships, and one of them that I, I had in the book that I took out as I diminished her role is called The Acorn, and it traces the life of lumber basically from an acorn to growing up to becoming a massive tree and then and then becoming an, a ship another one that i do have in the book is called the drowned mariner and she writes about this mm -hmm. man who just really fights against a storm and eventually is overwhelmed and falls overboard and drowns and he rests on the bottom of the ocean and you know there's all it's it's a watery grave for all these other sailors who have drowned and she wrote that poem about 1845 when uh, she was in early middle age. And, you know, I, I imagine that she was thinking about her father who had drowned some 30 years before. I, you know, that sort of thing will sure. never leave you, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, and then his uh, father, uh, Appleton's father, is it Seba or Seba? I've always said Seba, but I might be wrong. Seba Smith. Uh, yeah, um, so his father, has somewhat of a, uh, I don't know if you call it a literary reputation, but he um, invents a like a comic character uh, by the name of Jack Downing, uh, Major Jack Downing, um, who he writes a series of Jack Downing um, pieces, and he becomes, <clears throat> or Jack Downing becomes one of the sort of famous uh or like the most famous literary uh, creations of that of that period uh, the, the, basically everybody if you're alive in you know mid 19th century america you know uh or have heard a jack downing story or something like yeah that. so seba smith was a journalist in maine and he creates this figure jack downing who's this kind of country bumpkin from maine who in these fictional newspaper accounts travels to Washington D.C. and becomes a literary or becomes a, an advisor to Andrew Jackson, and these stories were extraordinarily popular. They were bipartisanly appreciated. So Whigs and Democrats love them. People all over the West, you know, in America and in Europe, love them. So I've found Europeans who are writing about them. People could quote them by heart. As a child, Abraham Lincoln loved these stories. At one point, Henry Clay goes to a dinner in Boston and meets Seba Smith and, you know, is just thrilled to meet the real Jack Downing. And there are some imposters out there. There are people who are, mm -hmm. you know, make, taking the story and, and making their own. And so Henry Clay was really excited to meet the guy who had actually created this figure. So everyone knew who the Jack Downing, who Jack Downing was in the 1830s and 1840s in America. I mean, he was ubiquitous. And even as president, Lincoln at one point gets a letter from someone who says, you know, I, I know you don't need someone at your shoulder giving you advice like a Jack Downing, 
but then proceeds to give advice anyway. So even in Lincoln's private correspondence, you have people writing to him as president about Jack Downing. So uh, Appleton Oaksmith is raised in this really prominent story uh, family, and your your audience is probably wondering, now wait a second, his name is Oaksmith, and you paused as you said Elizabeth's mm -hmm. name, you said Elizabeth Oaks Smith, and then the father's right. name is Seba Smith. And so just to explain this, Elizabeth Oaks Smith was originally Elizabeth Oaks Prince. Her middle name was Oaks. And when she got married, she started going by the name Oaks, O-A-K-E-S, and then a space, and then her husband's last name, Smith. And for some reason, we don't know exactly why. It may be that she thought that the Smith name was too plain, or it may be that, again, as this early feminist, she didn't want her husband or her husband's name to be her kids' names. But for some reason, she got the New York State Legislature to legally change the names of her sons, and it, it she smushed her middle name and her husband's surname together and got rid of an ES and made it Oaksmith. So it's O A K. S-M-I-T-H. And that actually made it really easy in some ways to research the book, because if I went on newspapers.com and I searched for Oaksmith, I was going to find this family because it was a made up last sure. name. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit more dignified than uh, mm -hmm. than just plain old Smith, you know, and I'm sure I, I, I you know, obviously you can't read into people's minds, uh, but I, I have if I had to guess, I would say. It was probably for both of those reasons. One, to make the name a little bit more dignified, and two, probably to assert a little bit of her yeah. uh, independence from her husband. I like, I don't, you know, I think that's probably definitely true. Okay, so uh, Appleton Oaksmith, um, he leads a life uh, of adventure, uh, most of it on the sea, mm -hmm. and uh, starting with these actually. Um, he does a little bit of, or spends a little bit of time in San Francisco uh, during the gold rush or post gold rush in the, the early 1850s. Um, and when he's out there, he also puts down a mutiny on a on a, yeah. on a ship that he's, he's captaining. So uh, already, I mean, he's young. I, he's I guess in his early, early 20s at this point, mm -hmm. I believe. So he's he's starting off with a bang. Yeah, he. I mean, he really has this extraordinarily adventurous life. At 16, he travels to China. Then in the 1840s, he's traveling around in these literary circles with his mother in New York City, where they're living. And he has some sort of love go wrong. We don't know exact. I have I speculate in the book as to who the woman may be that he w fell for and it didn't work out. And so he then travels around the, the South, South American coast all the way to San Francisco. And he keeps a journal the whole way that he goes. And so you see what he's doing at all the different stops. And I mean, he he's not very secretive about what he's writing. So, you know, he writes about some of the women he's sleeping with and the adventures he has, you know, people telling him you should dig up mummies and sell them out of the South American soil. I mean, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> he gets eventually to, to San Francisco in 1851 and he's there for about a year well, he's there on and off at different points. He does more travel along the West Coast of the United States. But San Francisco at that point is a very dangerous place to be. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of arson. And he joins a, a extra legal... It's basically like San Francisco yeah, now. That's right. <laughs> That's a fair point. Um, 
So he, uh, you know, he joins this extra legal vigilance committee where they basically it's a group of men who basically say we're going to we're going to bring law and order back through unlawful means. And he participates in this for a while, but then decides he doesn't want to he doesn't want to live in San Francisco anymore. It's not the city he thought it would be. And so he gets a ship called the Mary Adeline and he sails her back down the coast all the way around South America looking for uh, looking for a cargo that'll take him back to New York. And the thing is, he can't find one. And he's dealing with a mutinous crew at one point and also somewhat mutinous passengers who are thinking he's going too slowly. And, you know, his life is always kind of at risk at different points. He eventually makes it to Rio de Janeiro and he finds a Portuguese company that says, well, we've got a cargo, but it's going to send you to the coast of Africa, to the Congo River. And he reluctantly takes this on and heads to the Congo River, where the 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 current of the Congo River is is very, very strong. And his ship can't make it on into the river. And eventually it does, and then it gets beached. And when it gets beached, 3,000 African warriors come up onto the shoreline and attack his ship. And the only thing that saves his life is there were two British vessels there who were part of the British Africa Squadron searching for slave traders. And the British had actually boarded his ship earlier before he got onto the mouth of the river and beached. And he didn't have to let the British on under international law at the time. The British had no right to search an American vessel for evidence of slave trading, but he let them on. And that makes me think that he was not at least willfully on a slave trading voyage on this trip. Um, And so when he ends up getting beached, the Portuguese guys who were on his ship get out of there. And uh, when the Africans attack, the British come and fight them off and, and eventually help him get his ship back up on the water and he makes his escape. And this incident makes international headlines. Newspapers around the Atlantic part of the world are are publishing stories about the Battle of the Congo. And it's sort of his first international reputation, I think. Um, but it, it's it's a sense of bad things to come. He makes it back to the United yeah. States, and uh, well, I'll I'll let you go with your next question. But yeah, that's the first. Uh, yeah, thing. I was to say. Uh, was, no, no, yeah, yeah. I was to say. So, uh, we'll get to the slave trading thing later. But um, but well, I guess so. Just uh, on the slave trade in general, yeah. um, just at this time period. So, 1852, I believe, right, is when uh, this African uh, journey happened. What? Uh, what does the slave trade look like in April, in 1852? Because we know in America it's been, or the Constitution <laughs> basically has outlawed it since... 1808. Uh, what, eight, yeah, right so now, the Constitution had a compromise measure that said that the slave trade could not be abolished before 1808. So it didn't automatically say it would be abolished in 1808, but... If Congress wanted to, it could abolish the slave trade. And even though most or many Americans were pro-slavery or indifferent towards slavery in the early 19th century, I mean, there's no strong abolitionist movement. Most even pro-slavery Americans knew that while they were willing to accept or tolerate or even be glad about having slavery in the United States, they knew the Middle Passage was very immoral. And so in the summer of 1807, 
Congress passed a law abolishing the transatlantic slave trade, and Thomas Jefferson signed it, and it went into effect in 1808. But that doesn't mean the slave trade ended, and it continued. And so in 1820, Congress passed a law making slave trading a a crime of piracy, and so you could be executed if you were captured trading in slaves. But it continued again. And most of the slave trade in the mid 19 early, you know, antebellum, mid antebellum period is going to Brazil and to Cuba. And then in 1850, Brazil abolishes its transatlantic slave trade. And at that point, many of the Brazilian and Portuguese slave traders move to New York City and they operate their financial base out of Manhattan. And at that point, the bulk of the slave trade is going to Cuba. There are a few ships that come to the United States in the 1850s and very early 1860s, but most of it at this point is going to Cuba. Yeah, actually, my um, my grandfather's side of the family, my maternal grandfather, uh, is Cuban, hmm. and um, so uh, his he was telling me a story that his grandfather was telling him that um there was there was still slave tra- <laughs> slave trading going on in cuba even after uh cuban independence and after they outlawed the uh slave trade in cuba that there were still people on the fly mm-hmm. um uh transporting uh haitians and uh others yeah. uh into into cuba uh in slavery this was in the the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, yeah. it was it was still going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, but how is it? Um, so, who's combating? Who's doing most of the combating of the slave trade, and how is it being, and how is it being circumvented? It's primarily the British, and also to a lesser extent the Americans. The thing is that the British and the Americans have no treaty that allows the British to search for American vessel, to search American. Yeah, that's a, so, that's a sore spot with over impressment. And I mean, that's part of the reason that's right. we that's declared the war on them in 1812 yeah. to a large extent, yeah. just not wanting to allow yeah. the British on. So even people like John Adam, John Quincy Adams opposes the thought of letting the British search American ships. As, as much of an, you know, you know, he's the guy who argues the Amistad case, you know, he's an anti-slavery person, yeah. anti-slave trade person, but he doesn't want to allow the British to search American ships. And in fact, my recollection is he likens it to slavery. He says it would be like slavery if we allowed the British to search American ships. That's going to change in 1862 yeah. when the Lincoln administration will negotiate a treaty with the British that then allows the British to search American ships. But prior to that time, the British have treaties with many nations around the Atlantic world that allow them to search their ships. They just don't have a treaty to search American ships. And so when Appleton Oaksmith was approached by the British on who were part of the British Africa squadron, he did not have to let them on, but he let them on, I think twice. And part of it was he had just crossed the ocean and I think he was happy to see other white people who spoke English. But part of it may be that he didn't think he had anything to hide. And so he could let these guys on his ship. And I, I went to the British National Archives in the course of my research and looked through records from the the British Africa Squadron. And I know that they, they did search and find a slave trader a week before. So 
the British were active and they were catching people at this very time, but they didn't have any reason to do anything about Oaksmith after he let them on their ship. Well, uh, speaking of the slave trade and speaking of the Caribbean, um, he also becomes involved in another big mid-19th century uh, fad, and that is filibustering mm -hmm. <laughs> in the uh, Caribbean. So he does a little bit of that, um, uh, teams up with uh, the sort of infamous William Walker, yeah. uh, spends some time in Nicaragua. So tell everybody about his little... Uh, is that little filibustering adventure? Yeah, in the 1850s, he gets involved with William Walker, the I think his nickname was the Gray-eyed Man of Destiny, something like that, who was trying to set up a, an empire in Nicaragua, and he becomes one of Walker's chief lieutenants. He's responsible for raising money and ships and supplies in New York, and then getting it down to Nicaragua. I think he makes one trip down there at one point. Um, and he also gets involved around the same time in the Cuban liberation movement. And these two escapades cost Appleton Oaksmith a lot of money. His ships wind up, he had, he sends two ships down through, uh, down into the Caribbean and they get intercepted and captured by American authorities. And he fights through the court system to try to get these ships back. And he's unsuccessful. I mean, he's still fighting to get money back from these things, in the 1870s, he's still trying years, years later. And these two really wrongheaded and ill-advised Ill expeditions on his part cost him a fortune. And so by the end of the 19th, or by the end of the 1850s, his family has acquired a magazine called The Great Republic, and they're trying to make ends meet that way by publishing this magazine, and that doesn't work out. And so by 1861, Appleton is flat broke, he's filed for bankruptcy, and he somehow connects with a, a very wealthy man on Long Island who owns a fish oil factory. And they decide that they need to get old whaling vessels to go out on the high seas and hunt for whales to bring whale oil back for the fish oil factory. And the reason that that looks suspicious is that petroleum has been discovered in Titusville, Pennsylvania in 1859. And so when people start going out on whaling expeditions for the first time in 1861... Whale oil is uh, quickly getting replaced. That's right. The whaling industry is sort of just... And there are huge stockpiles of whale oil in places like New Bedford, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So... Um, do you think he was... I mean, it seems like, I don't know, just knowing, just reading the whole book and the guy's uh, sort of uh, cavalier uh, history um, kind of seems like he was uh, on his way to being a slave trader. Yeah, I mean, but he I certainly be. has some negative qualities, I'll put it that way, to <laughs> his his character and it's interesting i in the book in my acknowledgments I'll, I'll read this one line to your audience <laughs> this is how i i close the acknowledgments by thanking my wife and children and my wife's name is lauren and so i thank her and i say she shares a birthday with appleton oaksmith but none of his disreputable characteristics 
I ran that by her before I put it into the book. So that, that didn't surprise her. Um, maybe it was a mistake to write it that way. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, you know, <laughs> no, that's great. So like we'll it. talk about what he did or didn't do. And the, the difficult thing is he was arrested before he got ships out on the high seas. So he was arrested in 1861 for outfitting ships for the slave trade in New York City and in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And at that point, you know, when he goes to trial, they are saying, well, here's what was on board the ship. And this is why we think it was a slave trading voyage instead of a instead of a lawful whaling voyage. Now, so your listeners know. A whaling voyage in the 19th century would have lasted three years. So when you went out, you had a lot of supplies. Appleton Oaksmith claimed that he was going out for shorter periods because of you know the amount that they needed of whale oil. So he, he never claimed that they were going out on a three-year period, and that's why they had the supplies that they had. And in a sense, he was arrested too soon. He was arrested before he was caught red-handed like others before they had a smoking gun yeah and so i you know i i really wrestled with how to deal with this in the book and ultimately i decided i didn't want to either say yes he did it or no he didn't and i know that'll upset some readers um but what i tried to do is tell the story in a compelling way that lays out the evidence so with the trials and the arrests and all this stuff you know here's what his prosecutors were saying and here's what he was saying or what his family was saying in their private correspondence and uh, and allow the reader to read it almost like they're watching a news story unfold and they they take it in and and kind of decide um and i you know it, it i didn't i didn't feel comfortable saying either yes he did or no he didn't because he didn't he didn't actually do it uh, he was arrested right. before he did. So that that was the approach I took. And I attempted slave trading, baby. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, just like the circumstantial evidence, I mean, we mentioned him losing a fortune immediately before this. He, uh, he gets married uh, shortly before this too. And so now he has a wife and uh, children to support. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also, we know he's not, really morally opposed to slavery per right. se. He's very pro-slavery uh, because, in the end. Yeah, I mean, because he, he joins Tammany Hall uh, in New York City, becomes a member of Tammany Hall, and uh, when, during the secession winter of 1860-1861, after Lincoln is elected president in South Carolina and the rest of the southern states start seceding sort of one by one, he's attempting to broker some sort of... Uh, some sort of compromise mm-hmm. uh, on slavery that's going to keep uh, the southern states in the Union. So, like I said, we know, uh, so he doesn't really have any uh, moral scruples against the practice right. of it. He's he's broke. Um, and then, so, right, so he gets, uh, so he gets arrested. Uh, he gets imprisoned at Fort Lafayette by the, by the federal authorities. Basically, then they transfer him to Boston yeah. and they try him in Boston uh, the civil authorities try him right. in Boston, uh, where he's indicted. Uh, and uh, Charles Henry Dana actually is the is, the, is he the prosecuting he attorney yeah, uh, the for the case? Yeah, sailor. Uh, yeah, two years yep. before the mass. Um, 
so anyway, he's in, he's brought up on 10 charges, and he's found guilty on eight of them, and the jury only deliberates for, what, half yeah, an hour? Yeah, and I mean, the funny <laughs> thing is, you know, for lawyers who read this book, they'll get a real kick out of the chapter on the trial, I think. Appleton hired his uncle to be his lawyer, and the way that they came up with defending him was they got like a dozen women and girls to sit next to him as he's in the defense <laughs> at the defense table. And so it was trying to appeal to the sympathy of the jury. Like, look at all these women who are connected to him who might suffer if he goes to prison. And at one point, his sister-in-law is testifying at in uh, at the stand and they, mm -hmm. they orchestrated it so that she faints and Appleton gets up from his chair and runs up and catches her and the jury is just totally taken in by this but it ultimately it didn't work i mean it was a very lame defense and yeah you said at some point one one of the people is like or everyone uh or like all of them start sort of like crying on mm -hmm. you or at one point including him and he was like yeah that probably would have worked if it didn't look so obviously uh you know um <laughs> so obviously uh yeah. thought out beforehand you know right like if it wasn't entirely planned so yeah so he gets found like i said guilty on 80 of these charges very mm -hmm. quickly in uh only about 30 minutes and then um uh, but luckily for him i guess uh he's gonna escape from from jail from the charles street yep. jail uh that actually begins the right. book. Yeah, you talk about the, what the Charles Street Jail is now, which is a uh, uh, sort of little luxury boutique. Yeah, it's hotel. a luxury hotel uh, called the Liberty Hotel. So any of your listeners in Boston, if you've been by there, that's where he was in jail. Yeah. So uh, he manages to escape, but we don't actually know how right. exactly if how he escapes or if he had any help. Yeah, and this is um, one of the things that's so frustrating for me. So I mentioned earlier that I connected with uh, some descendants, and one of them I mentioned in a footnote has or claims to have a memoir that he wrote, and she would not let me see it. She, I think she was very concerned about me writing this book. And again, because the Oaksmith name is is unique if you Google Oaksmith, you're going to find slave trading stuff right away. I mean, that just is the first, probably the first thing to come up. And so she was very wary of me and wouldn't let me see this memoir. And I so badly wish she did because it might've given insight into some of the aspects of the story that I wanted to be able to tell. So I have a chapter on the escape and I base it, there was actually a grand jury report about it. And they interviewed everyone who was there. And so I was able to kind of piece together what did the jail look like and what was happening. But no one knows for sure how he got out. And I so badly, you know, wonder if the memoir might have given me that insight of how he did it. I think what you would have found in the memoir is that he actually drilled a hole through the wall and covered it with a Raquel Welch. There you from have million years <laughs> No, uh, no, I don't think he was actually Andy Dufresne. But um, anyway, yeah, so he manages to escape and we don't really know uh, where he goes immediately afterwards. We know where he ends up um, shortly afterwards and he uh, becomes sort of a uh, not only is he now a convicted felon, uh, he becomes uh, a traitor, I guess you call it. He sort of becomes like a half-assed blockade runner for the Confederacy. Yeah. 
uh, late in the war in Texas. Yeah, so he's running, uh, he's doing blockade runs between Havana and Galveston, and he has several of these. On a couple of occasions, he almost gets caught. On one occasion, his ship gets captured, and as the Union uh, sailors are boarding on one side, he escapes over the other side in a little boat with someone else and just floats around the Caribbean until he gets somehow gets back to Havana. It's extraordinary. Yeah, and that's I, I'll, crazy. I'll and point then... out here, just as sort of an aside for our conversation, because his life was touching so many different and important aspects of the Civil War era, not only was I able to uncover a lot of family records that survived, but there are a lot of federal records that survived. So, you know, I found accounts in the National Archives of these guys who were on the blockading ship who are chasing him. And I found, you know, mm -hmm. court records from all these different cases and so forth, which made it really easy to put this story together. Yeah, actually, um, let's backtrack a little bit because I, I almost forgot. Um, but you have in the book a chapter, like a little interlude about Robert Gordon, who Nathaniel. is the only man. Oh, excuse me, Nathaniel Gordon. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know why I got Robert Gordon. Um so Nathaniel Gordon is the only man the federal government ever put to death yeah. for slave trading. Um, and so this is uh, this has to be in Appleton in the back of Appleton's mm -hmm. mind because they're um, this is going on sort of the or the the Gordon trial and the, the the aftermath of the trial up to the execution is going on sort of right yeah. at the the same time as all this stuff is happening. Uh, with uh, Applin Oaksmith. So, um, so tell us a little bit about yeah, the, and so Robert Gordon. I'll, or excuse me, Gordon. Gordon. I, I, um, <laughs> I mentioned at the beginning that my original plan was to write a history of the slave trade as a whole. And so I'd already written a chapter on Nathaniel Gordon. And then when I decided to pivot to Oaksmith, I decided, well, I got to include Nathaniel Gordon. So I'd already written the chapter and I was able to uh, re redo it a little bit to situate it, but then plunk it in uh, because his story is essential as background for understanding Appleton's story, as you said. So Nathaniel Gordon had done a he had done three or four slave trading expeditions in the 1850s. In fact, when 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 Appleton Oaksmith departed Rio in 1852, Gordon was departing at the same time for one of his. And Nathaniel Gordon, in August of 1860, took a ship to the west coast of Africa. And he picked up 897 Africans. At least half of them were women and children. Some were as young as six months old. I mean, he's going after the weakest of the weak here. He purchase, purchases them with whiskey. When the men and women are boarding his ship, it only takes him about 45 minutes to do, which, you know, he's very skilled at this. And he uses a blade, a sword, or a knife to basically cut off any remnants of the clothes of his captives and send them below decks into this just horrific, stinky, disgusting, unhealthy, unsanitary hold of the ship. Now, he heads out onto the ocean, and he is approached by the ship, the USS Mohican, but the Mohican didn't put up its flag at first. And so Nathaniel Gordon sees the Mohican and has to decide, do I think it's a British ship or an American ship? If he thinks it's British, he's gonna run up a British flag or sorry, an American flag. If he thinks it's American, he's going to run up a British flag because they can't search each other. And so he miscalculates and he thinks it's a British ship. So he runs up the American flag 
And then they run up the American flag. And so they're allowed to search him and they find these 897 Africans below deck. And Gordon is sent to prison in New York City. And the Africans are liberated and sent to Liberia, although that's not necessarily a, the happiest of endings because they they that's not where, that's they're, not where from. they're from. <laughs> they face a lot yeah. of racial discrimination there because they have very dark skin. They don't speak English, which is a language that is widely spoken there. <clears throat> and they're basically forced into involuntary servitude of a form. So it, it's not ne- it's not necessarily the best of outcomes for them. I mean, it's better than the middle passage in the transatlantic slave trade and sold being sold into slavery in Cuba, but it's still not, it, it's not ideal. Right. Um, yeah. So Gordon is sent to New York and his first trial ends in a mistrial. And with his first trial, he, or a hung jury, his first trial, you know, the, the U S marshal is a Buchanan appointee and allows Gordon to just walk around the streets of New York, like a gentleman. I mean, the Buchanan administration had no real interest in prosecuting the slave trade laws, but then Lincoln gets elected and Lincoln replaces the U S marshal and the U S attorney. They try Gordon again. They move him to a maximum security prison called the tombs. They sequester the jury so that the jury can't be bribed. And this time Gordon gets convicted. And you know, you would think this is a great moral victory in America that finally someone is going to be executed for the slave trade, but so many people are just shocked that he's going to actually be punished. And they write to Lincoln, I mean, thousands of signatures on petitions to Lincoln and say, well, Gordon never really thought he'd be punished for this. So because of that, it wouldn't be right to execute him or Gordon has a wonderful wife and mother and a little baby, or Gordon has really nice friends. So for all these reasons, you shouldn't execute him. And Lincoln, in his defense, I mean, it's kind of like, hey, you know, like, no one else got punished right. for this. Why am I being scapegoated? But I mean, and he is being, I mean, they are doing it to, to uh, make a point. Um, you know, uh, that's, uh, that's obviously clear that, you know, we're going to make a point that this is, this is what's going to happen from now on. That's right. If we catch you doing this. Yeah. yeah. Now, Lincoln's response is the law has to be enforced, and someone who would do what Gordon did will never get mercy from him. But Lincoln grants a two-week stay of execution. And in the stay of execution, Lincoln basically concedes, okay, Gordon didn't expect to be executed, so I'll give him two extra weeks, in Lincoln's words, to prepare for the awful change which awaits him. In other words, he is about to be killed. He's about to be executed, and he better he better get ready. Um, better get right, get with, right God. with God. <laughs> That's right. And then, as yeah. part of that that stay of execution, and I'll read you Lincoln's words. He says, "In granting this respite, it becomes my painful duty to admonish the prisoner that, relinquishing all expectation of pardon by human authority." He refer himself alone to the mercy of the common God and father of all men. And I think in that line, Lincoln was saying to Gordon, you know what? These Africans who you saw as subhuman, as nothing but merchandise and property, they are human beings created in the image of God. They're endowed by their creator to quote the Declaration of Independence with certain unalienable Mm -hmm. rights, among which are life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. I mean, Lincoln was saying to Gordon and to Americans at large these are people who have rights that need to be protected. And so Gordon's execution was carried out on February 21st, 1862. And I'll point out that this was a really hard time for Lincoln. 
Lincoln's son, Willie, died on February 20th. I mean, the White House was in grief at this point. And but he is adamantly, you know, we are going to enforce this law. Gordon tried to avoid execution. Someone snuck poison in the night before and he took it. And people, the guards heard him writhing in pain. And so they called a doctor and pumped his stomach and and kept him alive. They were not going to let him cheat the gallows. And so February 21st, 62, he's the only guy executed in American history for slave trading. And that's in the background of the of the Appleton Oaksmith trial, because while the mm-hmm. execution is taking place, Appleton is sitting in prison awaiting his own trial. Yeah, and um, staying with Lincoln a little a little bit longer, um, Lincoln, in general, uh, it's kind of rare that he didn't, um, you know, commute the, uh, the or remove the death penalty, uh, just because he's in general he's um, not uh, a bloodthirsty or yeah. <laughs> vindictive man. And in, he actually does, and I don't want to say the word lenient, but he's merciful towards other uh, convicted uh, slavers. And uh, yeah, and, uh, through the, the body of his of his presidency, I mean, the way he uses his 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 uh, pardon pen and, and whatnot, he's actually uh, you know it's not like he's hell bent for blood, but it, it, he, I, I, you know, not knowing what's going through Lincoln's head, but it, it seemed like he thought that it was worth the point being made right. to, uh, you know, execute Gordon, even, you know, not uh, even him being the father of a small child and, you know, uh, the husband to a young wife, that sort of thing, um, uh, you know, and the tragedy that that's going to uh, befall in that family. Uh, he still thinks it's the proper thing to do. I think when Lincoln used the pardon power, he always sought justice. So a couple of years ago, Mm -hmm. I published a book called Midnight in America, and it's a history of what sleep and dreams looked like during the Civil War. And in the opening Mm -hmm. chapter, I look at what sleep looked like and how sleepless Union and Confederate soldiers were during the war. And as part of that, I talk about the these sleeping sentinels who fall asleep at their post and 95 of them got sentenced to be executed. And from the army, you know, the army brass perspective in the 19th century, if you fell asleep at your post, you were immoral. You were, you were not the man you were supposed to be and you should be executed. And that would then be a lesson to your comrades. Don't fall asleep at your post. And obviously you don't want people falling asleep at their post because if they do, then a camp can be overrun and you don't have a warning coming. So really important to stay awake. But Lincoln understood that these were volunteer soldiers. They were citizen soldiers, many of them 18 years old. They're not trained military men. And Lincoln commuted the sentences of all 95 because he he didn't see it as a the moral issue of these guys who were immoral. He understood that these guys were tired. And so he he always was inclined towards mercy in those cases. The flip side would be in cases of sexual assault, and there are exceptions, but Lincoln almost always allowed the sentence to be carried out because he had an innate sense of justice. And if if a man violated a woman and the evidence was clear, 
he thought they should face the full punishment of the law. And so he tended not to pardon in those cases. So if you look at Lincoln's pardoning cases broadly, he always did what he thought justice and the law, you know, the law tempered with a sense of justice would would require. Yeah. All right. Well, back to yeah. Appleton. Um, so, uh, so during this period, 1864, 1865, somehow he... Uh, manages to divorce his wife in Indiana, which was, uh, I guess, like the Nevada. Yeah, they had made liberator divorces in Indiana in the 1850s and 60s. Yeah, so, and I guess he does it without her knowledge. Uh, And then uh, somehow manages to get up to New Brunswick uh, in Canada, not New Brunswick, New Jersey, um, but in uh, the province of New Brunswick in Canada, and marries his cousin, Augusta Mm -hmm. Mason, and then they uh, truck on over to England, and he becomes a British subject, yep. uh, and ends up serving as a war correspondent with the London Globe, and covers the uh, the Franco the Franco Prussian War, which is uh, interesting, <laughs> interesting little uh, side career. But then uh, his first wife uh, manages to track him down, or maybe he, he sends, sends for her. her or, yeah. Uh, he sends for her. Yes. And then, uh, but basically it's like, Hey, guess what? We're divorced now. And, uh, here's the paper, uh, and I'm taking the kids and you're never going to see them again. And, uh, or, I mean, that's her side yeah. of the story. We don't really know, but uh, it doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so head. he met his first, while he's doing all these filibustering and Cuban liberation schemes in the 1850s, he meets his first wife. Her name was Isada. And they know each other for 10 days before they get married. And she winds she's up... An Italian, she's an Italian teenager. I think she's like 16 or 17. Yeah, she's an right? Italian immigrant yeah. teenager. And, you know, according to Appleton and his mother, Elizabeth, she has a very violent temper. And so she... It, it's interesting, during the war, she and his mother are working together to try to get Appleton's pardon... But at the same time, through Elizabeth's diary, you can see how much she hates her daughter-in-law. And so mm-hmm. but while Appleton's in exile, as you said, he gets this mail-order divorce from Indiana. And so the first wife doesn't even know that she's been divorced and now that he's married his cousin. And when she comes over to England, he forces her to sign papers and, and says, essentially, if you don't sign these, you'll never see the children again. And when she comes over, she expects that she's going to be reunited with her husband and kids. She has no clue what's happening. And so what's crazy about this is that throughout the 1860s, Elizabeth is working to procure pardon. And after Lincoln dies, she meets with Andrew Johnson. And Andrew Johnson is on the verge of pardoning Appleton Oaksmith. And when Isada finds this out, she rushes to the White House, meets with Andrew Johnson, says essentially, my ex-husband's a scoundrel, don't pardon him, here's what he did to me. And Andrew Johnson, the man who pardons every ex-Confederate, then refuses to pardon Appleton Oaks. And so the the irony of that situation is is really extraordinary. Yeah, but he finally will (laughs) obtain a pardon from uh, President Grant once the Ulysses S. Grant Grant is in office, and then... um, he ends up settling in in Beaufort, North Carolina, um, somehow, or I guess <laughs> by dumb yeah. luck. Uh, and uh, while he's there, he becomes a uh, a state legislature, uh, state legislator. So he's serving in the in the state house, North Carolina, and he is 
a a rapidly uh, anti Ku Klux Klan uh, legislator. So, which um, seems weird, um, knowing his past history, yeah. possibly slave trading, and you know, obviously no moral qualms about slavery. Right. Uh, but maybe his uh, whole um, his experience um, with his trial and his imprisonment, and I think it's maybe softened him on uh, these. Yeah, days. and this is one of those things where I wish that memoir survived, or if it does survive, mm-hmm. I wish I could have seen it to see if he talked about it, because I I was able to find speeches that he gave that were reprinted in the newspapers. And in in October of 1877, he even travels to New York City and speaks at the Cooper Institute, which is where Lincoln gives a very yeah. famous speech. And he it's part of the American Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, and he shares the stage with this very famous black preacher named Henry Highland Garnett. And I wish, I wish I could explain how does Appleton go from this pro-slavery guy in 1861 and this potential slave trader to the the next decade sharing the stage with this very famous abolitionist, former abolitionist, who is then pushing for abolition around the world. I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, it, it may be that Yeah, I mean, because you, you would figure the the easy the easy way, to, or um, if, you know, if he was just pandering, I mean, he obviously wouldn't be just pandering because it would be an easier to be a pro-Klansman mm-hmm. in, in the Reconstruction in South. Carolina, yeah. Uh, right, yeah. So, um, I don't know, maybe out of... Uh, and, and the family also are, um, they're not a family of Republicans. No. Uh, they're, they're all dyed-in-the-wood Democrats, dyed-in-the-wool Democrats. Um, so that's a very anti-Democratic Party position to take. I think he runs as an independent, right. uh, I believe, right? You said in the book. Essentially yeah, so. an independent Democrat, um, not the pro-South right. Democrat. Right, right. So, um, yeah, it, it is a, a, a weird uh strange uh turn of face that he is <laughs> becomes this person late and in, in the book i life. i was able to find a photograph of the state legislature the integrated state legislature and he's standing mm-hmm. there right with black state legislators legislators and the legislature itself was really divided on federal civil rights legislation and while Oaksmith didn't want full social equality for African-Americans. I mean, he's, he doesn't get to that point, but he does argue on behalf of black civil rights and served with black legislators. Yeah. And, um, and then the main tragedy <laughs> of his life will also occur in, uh, in Beaufort, where he's going to be involved in a boating mm-hmm. accident. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, four of his daughters are going to drown in this boating accident. They managed to save uh, a couple right. of boys, his sons, um, but his daughters will drown. And <laughs> and there are going to be rumors uh, that persist long after this in, in the area, at least in that area of uh, North Carolina, that um, <laughs> he intentionally right. drowned these girls because... Uh, he was again sort of down on his luck money wise and uh did it to sort of ease the you know four four fewer mouths to feed right. uh, sort of thing so that's i mean uh so that's uh an interesting rumor to have pop up <laughs> if you're i mean that's not something uh probably i mean almost assuredly untrue sure. that that's what happened but I mean, but just that 
that's that's what goes through people's right. minds when they hear that story about you. It tells you something about how his neighbors <laughs> saw him as an individual. And also, there's that uh, rumor uh, started. Uh, I don't know how long long before this that he also fathered mm-hmm. a uh, a bastard child with the uh, with a local uh, girl. Was it? A, yeah, with a local girl. So um, yeah, so he's got all that going on in in Beaufort. Yeah, and what's crazy is then you know this. So much of his life gets reported in the newspapers and told nationwide, and so this story of his him going on this boating expedition, July fourth, eighteen seventy nine, gets com- told in the newspapers and told nationwide and you being able to use digitized newspapers then allowed me to find how it was reported. And I found then an account of his ex-wife, Isada up in New York city, who then hears about this at, from she's living in a boarding house and someone comes in and mm-hmm. says, you know, did you hear about this boating ac- accident? And it was this captain Oaksmith and his family. And, Isada just falls out of her chair. I mean, she can't believe it. She now knows her daughters are dead, and it's it's it, it, that she hasn't seen. That's for right, years. and it's just and yeah. some of them are never. At least one of their bodies was never recovered, so never got a proper burial. And I mean, it's it just it just uh, if the family hasn't been destroyed by you know the imprisonment and the ten year exile and the divorce and all this stuff going on, this just does the family in Appleton's never the same his grandmother or sorry his mother their grandmother is never the same Isada is never the same his son uh one of his sons Randolph basically just runs away and never talks to them again I mean it just utterly destroys the family yeah Rand, uh, one he was one of the sons that was involved on the boat the, yeah I mean he was on the boat he survived yeah. and, and he basically... saved his little brother right but right. and at first he publishes something in the newspapers saying, you know, my father didn't do anything wrong. And my my mother, meaning Isada, is a terrible person. But clearly something's going on behind the scenes there that leads, you know, maybe it was Elizabeth or Appleton who wrote the statement from Randolph. And then, you know, he he flees from there and, and never looks back and then eventually actually takes his mother Isada in and she lives with him till the end of her life. Yeah, he goes out to South Dakota, yeah. I think, or stuff. And, and then, then I they, think eventually to, to Louisiana. End, Louisiana, right, right. Yeah, so I mean, North you can Dakota, only imagine North Dakota. Uh, North Dakota. So yeah, he tries. Um, he tries to get as far away as he can. Sure. Um, yeah, you can only imagine what that something, an event like that, would do to a family. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. Losing one child has got to be sort of, you know, irrecoverable. Yeah. I mean, to lose four like that, um, and just uh, especially for him being there at the moment and trying to save the girls and not being able to, and you know, pulling their lifeless bodies into the boat and not being able to find the one daughter. Um, you can only imagine uh, the grief in the anguish and uh everything so um and that's basically uh essentially sort of the uh, the end of like the story uh for the most part i mean i mean I'm, 
from that point on, it's just basically him just stringing out what's left of his life, um, you know, a broken right. man. And uh, same thing with Elizabeth, uh, his right. mother. Uh, sort of, the, she's going to actually outlive him by five years, I think. See, he dies in eighteen eighty-seven, and she dies in yeah. eighteen ninety-three. Yeah. So, um, and she's become a very uh, embittered uh, woman, uh, uh, or dies a very embittered yeah. woman, and uh, her. Her recollections of her life, <laughs> uh, written from this period, I mean, from this later period of her life, uh, writing about her earlier life, uh, that, that seems to tend to color how she is actually writing about her earlier life. It's tinged with that sort of uh, anger and regret and uh, uh, grief, you know, all in Yeah, itself. she wrote a memoir in the 1880s. It's never been published as a book. It's the originals at the New York Public Library, and in the 1980s or 90s, an English PhD student actually turned it, typed it all out, and turned it into her dissertation. So that's that's the version I used for the most part. But it's never been published. But lots of English literature scholars who write about this era, they use her memoir, and some historians mm -hmm. do as well. And the problem with her memoir, as you just mentioned, is when she's writing it in the 1880s, it's after tragedy, after tragedy, after tragedy. And that really colors her perspective. And what I try to do and what Timothy Sherman, this Elizabeth Oaksmith biographer is doing in his work is to show you've with her, you've got to go back to her private correspondence, which is all what survives is all held at the University of Virginia. She unfortunately burned a ton of her private writings when you know her life is falling apart. But some of it is saved. And if you go back and you look at some of her private writings in the 1830s, she's not bitter against her husband yet, but she gets there. And then she kind of reads that bitterness into her early life as well. Yeah, I mean, in her defense, he does I mean, kind of suck a little bit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he, her husband, he, you know, by the 1850s or 40s has squandered the family money on various, you know, investment opportunities and he becomes obsessed with geometry and writes a geometry geometry textbook that never takes off. And I've gone through his papers and his letters are just full of correspondence with people all over England and the United States. Like, hey, check out my geometry textbook and use it in your classes. And know, I know what that's like as a mm. professor when you write a book like you want people to assign. <laughs> it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so yeah. he's he's not doing anything to support the family. And uh, we should also point out. When they got married, she was 16 and he was in his 30s and she he was like really 31 or 32, resented, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. she really resented her yeah. mother for marrying her off to this this much older man. She felt like she'd been robbed of her childhood. Yeah. And uh, it, it was funny, too. I mean, the whole I mean, we know Steba created this Jack Downing character, but it, it and what a phenomenon it was uh, at the time uh for many years but it doesn't seem to bring in that much money uh which is yeah he sort tries of surprising. so he he gets a publisher as, as people are stealing the idea and making their own counterfeit jack downings he tries to get a publisher to publish the book which he is successful in but the publisher ultimately folds so he doesn't make the money off of it that he'd hoped and he can just never monetize it the way that he wished he could or i'm sure that she wished he could yeah 
Yeah, that's too bad. Anyway, all right. Um, well, I've already kept you over an hour. Um, so you know, we're pretty much to the end of the book. So might as well wrap it up with the the, the usual yeah. exit question. You should be familiar with this one at this point. Uh, uh, you know, sort of a an old hand at this now. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, as usual, what would you like the audience to get out of this book or you know what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having having, having well you know the book? one of the things we didn't talk about was the botched kidnapping attempt and oh, yeah right, so i'll just right. say we something very quickly about that. about that one of my hope you know abraham lincoln gets a lot of criticism today people say well his heart wasn't really in emancipation his heart really wasn't in black freedom and I think that's a misreading of Lincoln for a lot of reasons. But one of the things I do in this book is I show the great lengths that the Lincoln administration goes to to try to destroy the slave, the transatlantic slave trade through the story of Appleton Oaksmith. And at one point in the summer of 1864, Appleton is hanging out in Havana in the middle of blockade running voyages. And while that's going on, a Cuban slave trader has escaped to Manhattan. And there was no, the problem was there was no extradition treaty between the United States and Spain at that point. And so the Lincoln administration negotiates an illegal kidnapping deal with Spain and says to them, <laughs> look, we'll kidnap your guy in New York and send him back to you. And you kidnap our guy in, in Havana and send we'll, him to us. We'll, tra we'll trade slave traders. What's that? Two slave traders. We'll That's trade right. slave traders. We'll trade, we'll trade the exactly. slave traders. And, yeah. you know it shows just how much the Lincoln administration wanted to kill the slave trade. And it was a very controversial thing at the time. It's been, people knew about the slave trader in New York and what the Lincoln administration did there, but I, no one had put it together that the Cubans were offering to do the same thing with Appleton Oaksmith. And I was able to figure that out. And so as a teaser to your readers, I'm not going to tell you how it, or sorry, to your listeners, I'm not going to tell you how it turned out or what happened. It's crazy what happened, but you'll have to get the book to, to hear yeah. it or to see it. It is a, uh, as they, it's a banana story. Yeah. It really is. Um, <laughs> yeah, this guy, Appleton Oaksmith, um, it's just a very, uh, dramatic life. I don't know other way to uh, what other way to say it. I mean, it's a life of uh, uh, he seems to be constantly on the move, on the run, and uh, you know, on the lam, <laughs> so to speak, a lot of the time. Um, and but it's a fascinating look at um, um, at uh, this family because uh, I actually. Uh, I didn't really know much about um, Elizabeth Oaksmith. I had heard the name before. You know, I had seen, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, writers will use her unpublished mm -hmm. memoir uh, to sort of like color in, uh, you know, uh, for like anecdotes and things like that for the 19th century. So I had heard the name, um, knew she was a sort of minor um, sort of proto-feminist, yeah. I guess you'd call it. Uh, but I didn't really know the extent of her reputation, um, you know, during the mid 19th century. So that was really interesting to find about. And then just this whole, this whole saga and just family story, um, and and how Appleton Smith ends up in all these places and how it ties in with everything that's going on in the Civil War, and with the slave trade, 
uh, and you know Nathaniel Gordon and all this stuff. It was just a really uh, fascinating, fascinating book uh, and a fascinating look at, at this time period in, in this. Oh, family. thanks. Yeah, no problem. So yeah, again, for all of you out there, uh, this very interesting book. Uh, the name of it is Shipwrecked, a true Civil War story of mutinies, jailbreaks, blockade running, and the slave trade. So yeah, it's no joke. There is legitimate mutinies, legitimate jailbreaks, uh, legitimate blockade running, and legitimate slave trade yeah. going. <laughs> and legitimate shipwrecks. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there's it's, there's no hyperbole in the title there. It's uh it's packed full of all this stuff. So it's a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, like we're taping this on the 31st, uh, but uh, the book is out August 1st, so by, by the time you hear this, the book will be out. Um, so make sure you go out and uh, pick up a copy. Uh, highly, highly recommended by an author um, who uh, whose other work I have enjoyed. Uh, you know, I have a shelf full of his books at this point. And, um, you know, he's been a multiple... Uh, he's been a guest on this show three times, so which leads you to know how much I esteem him as, a, as an author. So, and I'm uh, gonna make sure beat out H.W. Brands and get on for the fourth time before him. I don't know. You're not. No? You know why? Because he's got another. No, he's got another. Um, see what happened. So I finally interviewed him on his book on. It actually came out late last year on uh, basically like the on Geronimo uh, and sort of like the the Indian Wars and like the last campaign of the Indian Wars and that came out in like November of last year. But I didn't have time to do it with him last year because I take this like big big like long vacation during the holidays oh. and then um so i didn't get a chance to do it before i went on vacation and then the first part of the year for me like january through uh like april may is like my very very busy point of the year with like my actual like my actual gig for work you know not my my side gig doing this podcast so like my actual job is, is very busy april through may so i didn't have time to do it and then and i finally got to do it with him a couple weeks uh, ago but he already but he already has another book coming out in well October. i have a book coming out in so, september and another one in <laughs> april so if i can beat him out to number five you really all right all right all right we'll have to, we're gonna I'll have to investigate it. this and all right <laughs> all right we'll we'll see all right so yeah again the book is shipwreck the true civil war story of mutinies jailbreaks blockade running and the slave trade the author dr jonathan white uh, Dr. White, thank you again very, very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, or if you have any uh, questions or comments, anything like that, you can uh, reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the uh, podcast. You can also reach out to us there if you have any you know, questions, comments, that sort of thing. Uh, feel free to uh, follow us there. Our Twitter account handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you check that out. And that's pretty much it. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.
Hey.